1: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Elliot Higgins is the founder of Bellingcat, an independent collective of citizen journalists who solve crimes the authorities can't. And I don't mean small fry stuff, I mean major international crimes, war crimes, human rights violations, the biggest stories of our time. The Financial Times have called Elliot a champion of truth in a post-truth world. And the Times say the Bellingcat has put dictators and kleptocrats on notice that no corner of the internet is too dark to be spied on. His new book, We Are Bellingcat, reveals how they do it. And he joined Hannah McInnes to tell us more.
0: In this book, which came out a little while ago you have uh, an afterword in which you talk about Navalny and your uncovering of the truth around his poisoning. And I'm sure that there would be probably 10 more afterwards that you would be writing uh, with each week and each news event that you've been involved in and uncovering. And I want to come to kind of recent events, but I think it's important to do what you do in the book, which is go back to the origins to sort of find out what it's all about you know, it's now a world-renowned organization, a huge team, and it's changed a lot. But I feel from reading this that the main premise, the ethos, where you started, that hasn't really changed.
2: Yeah, it's it's really what Cat is now is really informed by my kind of very early years of just blogging and contributing online and discussing stuff and examining videos. And what we've really done with Ballincat is show people how to do this and what we're seeing now with ukraine is a whole community of people who are in many ways like i was 10 years ago getting involved with things like geolocation and what we're really doing now with Ballincat is using that kind of energy from the kind of online communities that kind of twitter hive mind and those other things to really process a huge amount of content coming from the conflict zone adding useful information like you know geographical coordinates and other information, and putting that into a process that makes it useful information for accountability processes. And in a way, I'm, what we've always tried to do with Belly and Cat is to kind of look at those people on the ground who are filming these things and taking these photographs, and often they're doing it for accountability purposes, and sort of being the interface between that and what's happening in the accountability processes in the International Criminal Court and in other bodies. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Bellingcat's work has been really about seeing how we can turn that into a more professionalised field of open source investigation.
0: It's really interesting. I want to come to that that sort of sense of agency and how it goes on after your initial investigations. But back to how, you know, um, how it began and you say your original idea you know you were very at the beginning you were doing a series of office jobs you were unsatisfied you were watching politicians and celebrities and journalists as if you, they were another breed you say so just just a brief explanation for people of how this guy on a laptop in his kitchen in Leicester suddenly was exposing criminality on the wider scale and clarifying what's going on in war zones and, you know millions of miles away
2: well, it, it was never really my intention when I started to do this, to do anything more than really just write down things that I found interesting on the internet. And I, I was someone who spent probably far too much time on the internet arguing with people over videos coming from the Arab Spring countries. And during one of those debates on the Guardian Middle East live blog comments, someone said, well, how do you know this where this video was filmed? And I thought, well, actually, that's a reasonable question. How do I know that? And I realized I could use satellite imagery of the supposed location to look at um, key landmarks like a mosque next to a main road and that allowed me to figure out exactly where the video was filmed and show on a satellite image exactly where it was filmed and kind of basically you spot the difference between kind of, you know, the video and the satellite imagery. And that was really the first time I had ever done something that we now call geolocation. But for me, it was really just about arguing with people on the internet and winning. And in a really weird sense, with the way Russia behaves at the moment, you're doing basically the same thing because they're stealing most of their ideas off people from the internet and then bringing them up at the UN Security Council like we've seen happen today. And in a way, it's still using that analysis to in a sense win those arguments except now those arguments are taking place not just online but in you know courts and uh, with international bodies
0: and again another thing everyone will be soaking to sort of hear from you on, on on the russian reaction to ukraine disinformation which you go into in such detail in this book your knowledge of it just tell people i didn't know bellingcat the name
2: It it comes from a fable about a group of mice who are very frightened of a large cat. So they call a meeting and at the meeting, they decide they need to put a bell on the cat's neck. But then someone says, you know, one of the mice says, who's going to do it? Who's going to be, who's going to bell the cat? So in a way we're teaching people how to bell the cat themselves.
0: I wonder what, if you could clarify, you know, what you're doing, what Bell and Cat does is open source journalism, but what do you think, particularly, you know, obviously all our minds are on Ukraine, so I'm sure that that's what you'll be drawing on when you, when you think of this now, but it's been the same all the way along, that you bring the other journalists that traditional journalism doesn't bring. You know, we've got some great journalists on the ground at the moment in Ukraine. You're giving us a lot of information. But what does Bellingcat do that we can't get there in that way? Well, what's really
2: changed from around 2007 onwards with the introduction of the iPhone is the spread of smartphone technology and along with that, the spread of things like um, social media apps. So people on the ground in all kinds of situations can take photographs, film videos and share them very easily online. And the social media apps basically brings all that information together. part of what we do is work through that material and we discover it and it allows us basically to have in a way sensors in all these far away remote places that otherwise it would be very difficult to reach and as a journalist, you're one person on the ground going from place to place but using open source information, you can be in many places at once in one sense by using this information. We also have the development of things like Google Maps and Google Earth that provides satellite imagery we can use to cross reference against um, this um, kind of information. We have things like Street View as well, which is very useful, sites where people are sharing photographs that can be used for reference imagery. So you're also able to verify where things are filmed and photographed, um, and even when they're filmed and photographed as well. And because there's so much of this information, it's, it's almost kind of like the digital kind of echoes of real life incidents that we're looking for and using those to reconstruct what actually happened with these incidents. And that's something that was never really done before. I mean, there was done in small, like, like if you watch Don't Fuck With Cats, you will see them using basically open source investigation for what part of it. But it was really around the Arab Spring where this really came, started coming together In the early days, it was just a handful of people who were doing this from all kinds of backgrounds. There was me, there were people who were working for Storyful, which is based in Dublin, who were kind of trying to find and verify user-generated content, basically so they could resell it to media organisations with the permission of the original owners. But they started being drawn into conflict. You had people working at places like Amnesty and International and Human Rights Watch, only a couple, but they were kind of the original core group, and actually the New York Times uh, Visual investigation team has hired a lot of those original people, and they tried to hire me, but I said I was happy with Bellingcat. But um, that kind of started to kind of then grow into something larger and larger, and a, a lot of that came about because of the conflict in Syria, and the fact that very quickly in Syria it became very difficult for journalists to operate on the ground. It became more and more dangerous. The Syrian military were targeting them, jihadist groups and ISIS started targeting them, and eventually the only way to really monitor the conflict was through these open sources and that's really what i think really changed things a lot and over the years a kind of community has grown around that and that community is made up of people who aren't just you know traditional journalists who are getting involved but people working in human rights accountability advocacy work activists and just keen amateurs as well and this community part of it is collaboration is very core to what we do. In the early days, I knew I was just to go over my blog, and I didn't know you know, the difference between one weapon and another, and I didn't know where this place was. So I had to talk to people and work with them. And they were very interested to see this material and find out what they could do with it. So over the years, uh, this kind of network formed around Bellingcat and around open source investigation in general, and it's just grown and grown over the years. And I think that's something that's very unique and I, I hadn't really seen the journalism when I had been working with kind of early on in this, but more and more we're working collaboratively where we have multiple news organisations in different mm-hmm. countries working together on an investigation and open source evidence allows us to share a lot of information that's publicly available and then combining it with their more traditional forms of reporting. But we can combine that kind of journalism also with work that's outside of journalism, like kind of accountability and advocacy work using the same evidence and the same information. So, When you have a problem you're not attacking it just through one story you're kind of attacking it from multiple directions in multiple ways
0: i was going to say uh, exactly it comes across again and again in your writing that it it isn't about the end of traditional news media it's the end of traditional journalism and actually often it's just about a collaboration and a mixture of what you can both offer coming together to, to create the best picture i suppose
2: Yeah. And often when we're looking at a new investigation, like with Ukraine, for example, we quickly identified in our kind of a network organizations who are working on collecting videos in Ukraine and geolocating them, which seems like a very simple thing to do. But that information is actually extremely valuable when you archive it and you make it available to accountability bodies. And that's one of the first things that we did with our work on Ukraine was to start collecting these videos, archiving them in a way that we developed that was forensically sound. And adding coordinates to them so all these accountability bodies when they were trying to figure out what the hell's going on in Ukraine rather than having to start from you know square one and find the videos and geolocating Often weeks or months after they've managed to actually set up the accountability bodies, because that is a process in itself, we were already doing that initial work to collect that information and make it accessible and make it usable by those bodies. And we were able to do that in collaboration with organisations who are also doing the same thing. Um, And now we're able to take that information and turn that into research and investigations and also share that with those bodies and the public.
0: That makes it seem like there's a lot of agency and, and accountability happens after, after fantastic investigation and fantastic work. One of the things that sort of sits a little uneasy with me, I mean, reading the book, you, you say at one point, in the past, citizens heard governments lying, had little recourse, knowing there was no way of doing anything about it. Events on the news happened so far outside our control. That is not the case anymore. Nothing stirs the online investigative community like fabrications from the powerful but and, and you know you have been central to so much in the past years identifying russian involvement in the shooting down of the malaysian airlines flight war crimes in syria and yet we are in this awful unimaginable place and nothing has happened there has been it seems no accountability i just um, you know wonder if how how frustrating that feels after everything you've done
2: It's been interesting actually with Ukraine, because this is the first time that I've really seen the various communities really come together from day one and start working together. And I think that's partly because of the collaborative spirit that has been created through open source investigation and how that's touched on all those different fields. And there's certainly a frustration with all those people because those are the same people who've worked on Syria, who worked on things like MH17, and have been very frustrated at the lack of accountability. So now they're all coming together and they're basically really angry, and pissed off with Russia getting away with it all the time. So they're putting all their resources and their time into making sure that this time they won't get away with it. But this time, we've also got something very different. We've got, first of all, a really large, engaged online community that's part of the process. It's, you know... Prior to the invasion, you had all these kind of fake videos being put out by the separatists and you had the online kind of Twitter community just tearing them apart. Any discrepancy they would drill down on. And what would be great is you would see someone pick up on something and then someone pick up on something else and then someone say, oh, I've got this kind of specialization that I can actually help. There's one video that supposedly showed um, Ukrainian special forces attacking a um, chlorine storage tank and it was a claim that they were trying to create a chemical incident. Now, someone realized that the metadata had been left in the video because it had been shared on Telegram rather than other social media. And within that metadata, you could see, not only that had been the file had been created before the incident occurred, but you could see file names that um, it had been basically spliced together from. So the audio from one video was spliced into the, another video to create the sounds of explosions. And someone took those that video because it had the full video name in it, and found it on YouTube, and then analyzed all the explosions in this video, which was a Finnish training video, and managed to use a sound engineer, use like 3D waveform analysis, and this was all on Twitter, to um, basically match the exact explosion from the video from Finland that had been used to overlay into the um, fake video. And this was just loads of people, like different interests and expertise, just pitching in a little bit. It wasn't one person doing the work by themselves, it was a community of people coming together. And that's just kind of one aspect of this now we're at a point when people are looking at these videos and this community is geolocating them that's feeding into a data set that we're verifying and sharing with a very large range of accountability organizations and people working on different aspects of human rights. And we are almost like a service provider now where we kind of scoop this stuff up, verify it, and provide it to organizations that need verified information very rapidly from the conflict and don't have their own resources to do this themselves. And in a sense, these online communities have become a massively valuable resource in both collecting that information and verifying it and also countering disinformation.
0: I mean, that's the point, isn't it? You 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 say at one point newspapers are not the first draft of his history anymore, just as you've been saying, the social media is. But, of course, one of the things you write about in the book is everyone on social media is shouting. Then you've got this sort of idea that many of us worry about the internet because it seems it's chaotic. There's disinformation, misinformation, too much information. Everything's very fast and you, know, you retain a very positive view of the internet. I think that comes from the idea of what you're, what you're explaining, which is that Bellingcat is almost the antithesis of that fast-paced overload. And it's about actually slow, slowing everything down and a very time-consuming, meticulous process.
2: And part of what we try to do by sharing case studies and guides and um, being so detailed in our reporting is to kind of inspire and inform other people who are part of these online communities to give it a go themselves and put into practice what we've been demonstrating for our own work. And this is exactly what we've seen with Ukraine. More and more people are getting involved with geolocation, and they understand basic concepts of you know how to make a geolocation more useful to the people who are double checking it in the future. And there's more and more accounts popping up that do this and Some people might think, well, how can you trust these people? We don't trust these people. We trust the satellite imagery that is under the coordinates that they've provided to and match that against the video footage they shared. And if it's wrong, we know it's wrong very, very quickly. And if it's right, we know it's right very quickly. But that means with regards to how much work that takes, it could take several hours or more for one video to be geolocated by one person. But if someone's already done it, it's 30 seconds a minute to double-check the coordinates, see it's correct, and then add it to an ever-expanding data set. So it's kind of understanding that the internet is a chaotic place, and I think some efforts around open source investigations for, oh, can we build a platform to make it more organized? That's not what you want to do. In a way, you've got to kind of ride with it. You've got to kind of learn to use that chaos and the way communities kind of form and collapse very, very rapidly on social media around certain topics and see what's sustainable or not sustainable and feed that into a system that is producing useful information. And I think that's what often makes spelling cat very unique, that in traditional media organizations, they don't really work like that. They aren't thinking in that those terms. Even those organizations that now are doing open source investigation, they may use a bit of this kind of public communities kind of information on what's being shared, but they still are very much focused on a more traditional investigation process, even if it's an online investigation process. While we're, because we're also not focused on pure journalism, we're also doing stuff around accountability in other areas, we can look at that information and understand its value in relation to possible outcomes that aren't necessarily just journalistic, And the great thing is, because it is open source, we can have multiple outcomes from the same material. So it doesn't just have to be if we do an investigation, it must be a news story. We can say we could do kind of a more newsy story for the website, we could do a very thorough investigation specifically intended for accountability. Uh, We could turn it into a podcast, or we can make an interesting Twitter thread that has a massive amount of engagement. We see that as all potential ways to bring that Information to different types of audiences. And with Bellingcat, audiences just aren't receivers of information. They are potential collaborators in the investigation process themselves. So by building an audience and not just building it as readers, but also as collaborators and showing them how to do this stuff, it actually increases the capabilities of Bellingcat by many, many factors. And this is I think why we're able to do so many really big stories that other news organizations often aren't able to do because we're able to harness that energy. And it's a great multiplying factor for the work that we do do.
0: And, I mean, and you do, you do that. You say to sort of other news organizations, um, a slower understanding the power that, that comes from that. And what about, you know, powers that be and their understanding of, of what you're doing, because it's, it seems to me that if you know you, you talk in the, in the book, obviously, about the key role that you played in uncovering the story around, as I said, the Malaysian airline flight and how actually woefully old school and inadequate the kind of US were at that stage. And just generally Western governments not really understanding, perhaps, or tapping into uh, this extraordinary wealth of information that you get online. Are they catching up?
2: To an extent, yeah, I, I think it's a bit difficult because often that kind of information for them comes from the intelligence process where that information is inherently part of classified information. Even if it's open source to begin with, it gets combined with other intelligence that then creates this, it turns it into basically classified information. But what we saw in the buildup to what was happening in Ukraine was the US and its allies being a lot more transparent about what the intelligence was telling it them now they weren't sharing that direct information which would be a lot more useful for us because then we're able to double check and you know fact check this stuff but they were sharing information that was being supported by information coming from the ground i mean they got the timing of the invasion off by about a week but i mean that's still pretty good going um but even independently of what they were saying you were able to look at things like um you know russians filming tiktok videos of russian troop movements near the border where you could see certain military units that weren't clearly weren't part of a training exercise being moved towards the border. And that giving the kind of evidence that we needed to show that there was this buildup happening, that there was a potential invasion. I have definitely seen from various governments more and more attempts to be transparent about this information. And one thing we've always tried to make a case for is any organisation that shares transparent information is adding to a body of information that can be verified and then combined into with other information by organisations like Ballencat and you know in the future when there's hopefully a lot more organisations like Ballencat that you know is something that could be a really significant force multiplier when it comes to you know tackling various issues and you know bringing information to the public because If a government is being truthful and they're providing information that's transparent, it can be verified against other sources. If they're lying and they're producing information that's false, as we're seeing a lot with Russia, you can very, very quickly debunk that. And it also helps build trust in governments and more traditional kind of um, power structures when they can be transparent about the information that they have, because it allows that to be verified. And open source gives us many, many ways to actually cross-reference information they're providing against a variety of sources.
0: You mentioned their Russian, Russian you know, relationship with the truth, which is kind of extraordinary and predictable. And if it wasn't so tragic, it would almost be a joke. Um, it's, it comes across in, in, you know, in here, the, the sort of disinformation um, apparatus, the Kremlin's playbook, you know, and, and what you describe, what you describe as being used kind of throughout recent history it just seems to be happening again and again. For example, the four Ds. Are we seeing it all just play out again here with Ukraine, aren't we? And particularly today.
2: Yeah, I was. The funny thing is, when this conflict started to build up, I thought, right, we're going to see all the lessons that russia's learned from dealing with kind of banning and you know all the times we've kind of exposed their disinformation they're probably not going to make those mistakes again and they've just repeated the same stuff as they've done every single time i mean this over the last 24 hours we've had these claims from russia saying that the images from buka uh Bukha were you know they were people who were killed in the last few days not when the russian army were there and they made satellite imagery coming from the Um, New York Times showing the corpses are in place. We've had a drone video come out this morning from the Ukrainian forces that was taken earlier in March, where we see Russian forces firing on a cyclist. There's video of the corpse of that cyclist in the same location that was filmed when people entered the uh, Ukrainians, entered the town. And despite all that, all that very, very clear evidence, Russia, just in the last hour, was at the UN Security Council repeating those same debunked claims and it's one thing to say oh russia is just doing it for their own audience but they look completely ridiculous to everyone else and the speed at which this stuff is being debunked is extremely rapid now this isn't like with mh17 where it was taking days and weeks to debunk this stuff i mean there was stuff early on in the conflict from the separatist side that was debunked within an hour of it becoming online and the fact that the Russians still haven't really learned their lessons from Bellingcat on how to produce better disinformation, I think really just speaks to how just completely pathetic they are, really. I mean, if you're going to lie to us, at least kind of increase the quality of the lies, because the open source investigation community have got has got bigger and better at debunking them.
0: You say, you know, sort of pathetic they are, but obviously we've, we're seeing Russian brutality. You've been seeing... Um, and calling it out for, for years. We, we see what happens to people who have the bravery to call it out. I have to sort of ask you, because you do refer to it in the book and it must be something you get asked a lot, whether you feel quite fearful given the sort of lack of anonymity and the and sort of great um, loud voice you have. I mean, Lavrov has referred to Bellingcat many times, the Russian foreign minister.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's escalated over the years from kind of first the Russian state media going after us and Russia and Sputnik claiming that we're unprofessional and those kind of things. Then following the Scripple poisoning case, they shifted to saying that we're working with MI5 and funded by various governments and part of the intelligence services. So in a sense, they've given us a promotion, but it's not something that I kind of like praise on my mind all the time. I mean, I have to be more careful both in, you know, the regards to cyber security, my personal security, but not like anything obsessive or, you know, crazy. I do have my moments occasionally where, you know, I I was staying at a hotel during one of our staff retreats last year and um, I turned the air conditioning on one day and a terrible smell came from the air conditioning, like a really strong, eggy smell. I was like, Oh my God, what's that? And then I just had this kind of physical reaction of like a, and my lizard brain took over and thought, "This is it. You're you're poisoned. These are the last moments of your life in this hotel room." And I was like checking my pupils to make sure they weren't dilating or constricting unusually. And I was kind of part of my brain was saying, "This is really silly," but then another part of my brain was saying, "Well, they did put you know Novichok in Alex Navani's pants, so you've, you know, <laughs> we know how they kill people, and it's in kind of really dumb ways like that." So it, it does kind of get you a bit. But the thing is, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it was the right thing to do. And um, I think it's very important that people do stand up. I mean, if the whole point of Russia being horrible shits is to scare people like me into not saying anything against them. And if you do go quiet and you don't say things against them, then they've won and uh, the world and Russia will just get a worse and worse place.
0: You actually say that the thing you worry about more is the impact on your psychology and the psychology of the people who work for you because of those hours and hours and hours trawling through footage that most people really don't want to sort of have to look at for very long.
2: Yeah, vicarious trauma is a really big part of um, this kind of work because we've been trying to get out a lot of information about this to the people who follow the bell account on social media because... Seeing this imagery day on day and people can get very drawn into it, even as you know, just a general social media user, you can get drawn into an endless stream of just horror coming from these places and you can feel quite powerless in face, the face of that. I think I've been quite fortunate in that, although I've seen a lot of this imagery, it's also been you know in conjunction we've been quite empowered by the fact I've been able to do something with this imagery and it's not just horrible images I feel like I can't do anything about but it affects people differently in different ways so when we're working with our staff members we're very kind of active in making sure that they get support and we have like um, a trauma risk management program where everyone gets to speak to a psychologist every few months just they don't have to share anything they can just have a chat about what book they're reading but it just gives them an opportunity to have a space where stuff can be brought up like that. And I, I think that's very, very important, not just for people in Bannon camp, but also the community around us. So we have guides and information around trauma and how to mitigate risk from that, that we share with the people we follow us on social media, because those, we know those are the people who are following us on social media because they're so engaged with the conflict and they're more likely to see this traumatic imagery. And it, it's possible to feel like the entire weight of the world is on your shoulders, that you have to watch these videos, at least to witness them, but also to you know, try and do something about it, to share it or to geolocate it or something like that. And it's possible to get drawn into that so much that it starts becoming, you know, almost a very dangerous obsession that you don't, can't kind of detach yourself from what's happening because it has got such a grip on you. And that's where damage can start happening. So we encourage people to take breaks all the time. You know, we've got staff members who are working on Ukraine at the moment who are taking days off. And you know, we're telling them not to like we've got people going to the Perugia Journalism Conference, and I'm hoping that gives them a chance to stop thinking about Ukraine for a few days and drink quite a lot of wine and you know unwind rather than just thinking about Ukraine 24-7. Um, but you know, even with me at the start of the conflict, I was probably I would get up at you know six o'clock in the morning immediately be on my phone checking what's happened over the last, you know, seven hours or so I've been asleep. And then at last week at night, I'd be going to bed, Checking my phone for the last moments just because I felt like I had to be constantly engaged with what was going on. So I could organize all the stuff around it. And for me, that was the extra kind of pressure of not just studying the conflict, but also organizing all these systems and processes to gather the evidence, to process it, and make it available to accountability organizations. And we achieved that, but it was an awful lot of work to get to that point. And I'm really looking forward to my next day off back and actually not think about this
0: stuff. I bet you are. But what what about, um, you know, say, sort of importance of detachment? And I know that, you know, people who are sort of pointing to you critically say and said in the past, OK, so your investigations are sort of predominantly relating, as we've said, to the Putin government or the Assad regime. And they question whether, you know, you are entirely impartial or whether there's a political agenda Whether you, you know, what you want are advocating for something in the process or just laying out the evidence?
2: Well, for me, because we are collecting evidence and it's actual evidence that can be used for accountability and can be used in a legal sense as well as kind of a journalistic sense, there is almost an imperative to actually use that information in that way. Bellingcat was not set up as a news organization. It was really set up as a well, basically an extension of my blog, but it's really become a primarily an investigative body rather than a kind of journalistic body. So for our investigations, we might might find it information where there can be further action taken in a different way. For example, when we were doing our work on Saudi airstrikes in Yemen, we developed a process that was specifically designed for accountability. And we've been using those investigations along with lawyers to challenge UK arms exports to Saudi Arabia and get involved with other legal challenges around the export of weapons to Saudi Arabia with the um work we did on black lives matters process where we um cataloged violence targeting journalists that information is now being in the, used in the US to restrict non lethal arm- ammunition sales to various police forces who use them to attack journalists so you can make a good story out of this information but you can do so much more with that and i know to many traditional journalists that is you know blasphemy basically to say something like that but I didn't come from that kind of traditional background, so I'm just thinking, what is the most that we can do with this information in the best way? And I don't see kind of journalism as a kind of end to what we're doing. It's more kind of means to the end. But at the same time, what we're doing has to be fair. It has to be accurate. We write about Russia a lot because Russia does lots of really terrible things. I mean... People may look at our work on the Varney and the Scripples and some of our other poisonings, but that investigation really started with the Scripple poisoning clues from that led to the immediate gefrif poisoning in Bulgaria, which led to the Russia's secret chemical weapons program. And that investigation then led to the FSB team that poisoned the Barney. And that led to um, the discovery that that team had been following the Boris Nemtsov before he was killed, that they'd killed three other activists and they had uh, poisoned Vladimir Karamurza, one of Boris Nemtsov's al- allies. That's not because we're going after Russia. That's because every time we find something, there's like three other big stories that come out of it that are worth investigating. or, or a big deal. It was the same with MH17. We just started looking at MH17, because at that point it was me and some volunteers who were just interested in the same thing. But as we looked into that, we discovered more about the conflict in Ukraine and Russia's involvement with it, which they were denying at the time. So we, it was just like, okay, this is an interesting thing. Let's look into it. It was just a kind of natural progression of what we are looking into. Um, and it, I mean, it, it's kind of frustrating because we do work on a really wide range of subjects, but because of Russia stuff so big, because people actually are interested in the Russia stuff more than any, anything, Everyone who is a kind of casual acquaintance of Bellingcat or just know us, they know us for the Russia stuff. And then they say, Oh, you only do stuff from Russia. And we're like, no, we do loads of very good stuff as well. Please read that because it's we a lot of effort into that stuff as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And, you know, just a glance at the website, of course, you do so much on stuff reading a book. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's just a huge amount there, as I said at the beginning, I, w- I wish we had a, a lot longer because every story that you tell is just kind of extraordinary Um, one only sort of wishes I suppose that it was fiction in, in most instances and um, but people who who can kind of go behind the scenes of all of your investigations can can find that in, in the pages of the book. Unsurprisingly there are an extraordinary amount of brilliant questions coming in from the audience. So I'm going to kind of quite quickly move to them but I do, I do just interested to hear wh- whether you that you feel there's any threat in what is now happening which is in terms of for example russia shutting down so much um sort of social media and does that in any way impact on all your investigations and what you're doing they, they really are this time you, you know you said that the playbook is coming out but this feels uh, like another level of of um shutting down on on social media and on the internet
2: I think really you've seen since about May last year a real crackdown on civil society and and free speech in Russia – Many organizations have been declared foreign agents inside Russia. Uh, even Bellingcat has, despite it's not having any presence inside Russia, but they've been using that to basically censor organizations. A lot of organizations had to, leave, had to leave the country in the last couple of months because, especially since Russia passed a law that made it illegal to basically tell the truth about what was happening in Ukraine. We have colleagues who've had to leave the country very recently because of you know a direct threat to them because of this. And there's many Russian organizations who were working somewhat freely that have now been shut down, like um, Echo Moscow, for example, and other um, media. So there's this kind of internal crackdown on basically free speech. And we've seen how protesters get arrested for just holding up blank signs and, you know, Red Square and stuff like that. But also, we now have this attempt to cut off a lot of the Internet. There are some fears that Russia may try to create their own kind of great firewall and cut off Russia from most of the rest of the internet whether or not how successful they'll be with that is difficult to say but I think one thing that we have to really do is make sure that Russian voices outside of Russia are still engaging with Russian voices inside of Russia because often I see you know I I, get, I talk to lots of people involved with countering disinformation and you know com strategies and all those kind of things that I'm not very interested in and they're always like so how do we reach to the Russians like, you, we don't need Russians being told by some Western expert that they're being fed disinformation because they don't want to hear that because it's really boring to be told that every bloody day you want russians talking to russians about what's happening in ukraine in a way that they understand in a way that's you know engaging not just having a finger wagged at them by some western expert who thinks they know better so i'm I'm hoping that what we'll see soon is more and more attempts at that you know helping russian civil society is now outside of russia reach those kind of audiences and plan around this potential kind of shutdown of the kind of connection between the
0: Russian internet and the global internet. I'm going to move to some of these questions, um, particularly because a lot of them you, you address really interestingly in areas of the book, and this one is, is important. How do you stop being taken in by deep fakes? I think you need this question. I think it always comes. Um, this is not difficult to do for many hackers, especially when they're backed by sophisticated players, countries, et cetera.
2: I often think of it in terms of the kind of initial social media reaction to this kind of stuff and the use of that as evidence. Now, Deep fakes are useless as actual evidence because if you are an account that shares deep fake, the first question is we're gonna ask is, who are you and where did that video come from? if it's a video of someone giving a speech, we'll say, okay, it's a two-minute clip. Where's the rest of the speech? You know, because these often aren't that short. You'll often find, you know, other details in the background. You will say, Oh, well, it matches to this speech he gave on this date. We can watch the whole speech. He didn't say the thing, therefore. This is a fake. Now, that's great if you've got, you know, 24 hours to spend looking through this, or you can hopefully rely on the online community to figure it out really quickly. But... The internet being the internet, by that time, a video has got 50,000 retweets and there's loads of people being angry about it. And I think there has to be a kind of almost technological arms race with the social media companies on building software that detects deep fakes, which is something that's possible and having that an integral part of their basically posting system. So you share a video that has been altered in some way like that, it can be detected and then it'll prevent you from posting that or it will get tagged in some way saying this video has been altered and is a possible deep fake. And that's kind of really, I think, the only ways to really address this. But from the side of Banning Cat and our research, because we are investigating these things and we're triangulating information as much as possible, it's very hard to introduce a fake piece of information into an information ecosystem and expect it to survive through a kind of verification process because it doesn't have all those networked connections of in, within its kind of metadata and other information that relates to it that can help people kind of can help it become authentic because it isn't authentic. And this is often the problem that Russia's facing at the moment. The problem of the lies, it's very difficult to tell it when there's a million different things saying that it's false.
0: Mm. I'm glad that Gareth has asked you this because it it would give you the freedom to choose one of the many. But what would you say, he asks has been the most rewarding case you've worked on and that has gone further to make a positive difference. And he also says thank you for all your work around the war in Syria, supporting people there. Um, Putin is doing now what he did there so sadly we're aware of that regime would do and think that they can get away with keep being you and the team and never giving up, clapping hands emoji.
2: (laughs) I think, I, I mean, the obvious ones are obviously going to be MH17, you know, partly because that brought together the open source community and was a big catalyst for it, but also helped kind of establish the trust in the accountability community and the justice community in open source investigation. The work on the poisonings, I mean, that's i mean, that's really down to Christo Grosso, so I, I, I wouldn't feel I could take credit for that, but he's done just incredible work exposing that. But one thing I really enjoyed doing actually was um, late last year, I was contacted by an organisation called Dog Lost, um, and they had CCTV footage of a um, dog that had been stolen. and The car was driving away with a very blurry number plate on CCTV, and they said, can you help us at all? If you heard about you, can you help? And I thought, well, We've got a thing we can do with um, blurry number plates because a few years earlier, one of my colleagues, Timmy Allen had developed a machine learning process to decipher number plates um, that were blurry on CCTV footage. And that was for the murder of Pavel Sherman, a journalist inside um, Ukraine. And we use that same process to, decipher the number plate on this dog napper and we took the number plate and got the number we looked it up online using the kind of uk car uh, mot database and it matched the make and model of a car so the, the organization gave it to the police who went around to the house and the dog was in the garden and they managed to recover the dog and bring it back to the owners and then they contacted us again with another case where we basically did the same thing but this time the people who stole the dog were trying to blackmail the family by saying, basically showing a video of them training the dog to be a, a fighting dog. It wasn't really getting involved, but it was clear they had other dogs who could do that. So the family were like really upset about this. And within 24 hours, the dog was returned because we were able to decipher their number plate and they freaked out and gave the animal back. Then there was a third case where, again, they tried to black, you know, ransom the dog back. And this time they just sent them what we'd done with the previous two animals and they were so scared they sent the dog back straight away. So it, it it's not obviously on the scale of global assassinations or war crimes, but it's nice to actually have a direct impact. Where Because, you know, with war crimes, it's like years and years before you say an impact. But knowing that a family's been, you know, had their beloved pet taken away from them by fees and then being able to actually get that return to them was, you know... Uh, it was a kind of a nice satisfying thing to do when you, you're faced often with such a
0: deluge of things about the, you know,
2: the accountability is so far away in the future.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. I mean, it is, as you say, far away in the future. I mean, did, you talk about the Malaysian Airlines, the US, you were um, completely essential through mapping and everything you did in, in, in uncovering the fact that it was uh, Russian separatists. There, I mean, did you ever see that turn into anything, you know, in terms of accountability?
2: Well, there's the trial in the Netherlands at the moment that's drawing on a wide range of evidence. Some of our work has been cited there, but I think for that it was more about the... I, I kind of wonder if it wasn't for the work of Bellingcat, what would have been the public kind of perception of what happened? Because you had relentless Russian disinformation around MH17, and we were really the only people who were kind of really pushing back against that in a really big way, that we were able to kind of debunk all their claims, just you know tear apart the lies that they were telling... And present that in a way that reached a lot of people. So even though that the, there wasn't the kind of traditional kind of legal accountability, a lot of what's happening in Ukraine now is happening because of the community that developed around MH17 and the trust that was built there. So I think there's stuff that's happening that wouldn't be happening if it wasn't all that work that was done on MH17. It's
0: really interesting. Another really important question comes from um, Liam. Fantastic talk. Thanks for all your incredibly valuable work. Um, how much of a danger is there that by releasing your techniques for others to follow, you're teaching bad actors how to hide the tracks of what they're doing and how can you counter that?
2: Well, that, that, that was what I was worried about with Russia and Ukraine. <laughs> so It's clearly not really having much of an impact there. Um, but we do have to we do take that into consideration. It The thing is to be to make our case, we have to be transparent about our process and how we work and to. You know, influence other people to do the same kind of work. We also have to be transparent about what we're doing. So. In a way that kind of is counterbalanced against the kind of risk of you know bad actors learning what we're doing and russia certainly has taken steps against the kind of work we're doing they passed a law a few years back that made it illegal for russian soldiers former or current to share information on social media about any of their military activity and that was because we had been going through all their social media profiles and like reconstructing units and figuring out who was involved with war crimes and shooting down oh-17 so that was kind of the first really big reaction we had but then we just found that uh, there was a bunch of other stuff we could look into as well. It, it's not like one door closes and there's no other door. One door closes and there's 10,000 other doors that we can look through. And we're kind of sport for choice. And it doesn't have to be Russia. It could be another country where they've never heard of open source investigation. And, you know, they, that's still wide open. It's like when we did the um, investigation that um, ended up being a BBC piece Anatomy of a Killing into um, the murder in Cameroon of two women and two children. That was um Basically, at first, the Cameroon government, they gave a press conference after we started our reporting where they literally had a still from the video with the words fake news written underneath it. And a year later, because of our reporting, the same government had those soldiers on trial and they were convicted for those murders. And they kind of weren't really ready for what we were able to do with open source information. We were able to find exactly where the murder took place, the soldiers involved, and other information based off one video. So that, I think, kind of, you know... Even though one government or one nation might figure out some of the tricks that we're doing, there's plenty more that don't have a clue and that we can still kind of have a real impact in.
0: Um, A lot of people are asking how they would get involved. So how does Joe Public get involved in investigations? Somebody asks, how can a layman like me get involved with Bellingcat and what it is doing? A few people asking the same thing. And I know that you get asked that a lot.
2: Yeah. So um, what we encourage people to do is engage with the online community on Twitter that's already doing stuff around Ukraine, you know, Figure out how to geolocate a video. We have guides on the website. It's not terribly difficult once you realize it's, you know, basically adults spot the difference. But see what other people do. Look at someone who's geolocated a video, look at the coordinates they've provided, and then just look at the map and the video and figure out how they've matched the stuff off. That's a very simple thing, but it'll get your brain working to think about satellite imagery in relation to the video footage. What we don't want to have is a kind of controlled volunteer community because the very nature of this kind of thing is it's kind of chaotic and socially mediated and it's ad hoc communities form and collapse all the time. So what we're trying to do is, you know, harness that rather than trying to build a really big internal community of volunteers, because that is very difficult to do. Long term, we're slowly building up an internal volunteers community that um mean, we have a backlog of several hundred applicants for it so i wouldn't encourage anyone to pop me emails about that but we're trying to build this community that's specifically trained because we have to train people to work with traumatic material so if people are coming to bellingcat to work as volunteer we have a very long integration process where we train them with dealing with material we show them how to use our system so that group of actual volunteers are very small but they're very engaged but if you want to get involved like, it seems a bit trite, but go on Twitter, see who's sharing stuff. I'm retweeting people all the time who are doing interesting things. Follow them, watch what they're doing. If a video comes out of Ukraine, maybe say, okay, how do I figure out where this was filmed? Or a video coming from anywhere, say, you know, tweet it with the coordinates with geolocation or geolocated, and we'll just use Twitter search to look for everyone who's posting geolocated or geolocation on one of those things. And it's really just as you know straightforward as that.
0: You've mentioned Twitter a lot. You say in the book, it's the best wedge into the news media. and Twitter has a, a really a lot of too many bad sides to mention. But do you maintain that, that it's a really important space?
2: I would say with the conflicts in Ukraine at the moment, it's one of the most important spaces for this because there's so much conversation and kind of interaction and people working in a very positive way. I mean, there's always going to be people, you know, just suck and believe Putin's great and that all the war crimes are fakes made by Ukraine. But just ignore those people and kind of focus on you know the positive aspects of it. Or if you feel like a bit of a fight, just, you know, if someone's saying something's false, say, okay, how do I prove that's not false? What do I need to do to actually say? Geolocate it so you can figure out when it was filmed. Find other videos and evidence around that and just do that as a process. The best investigators are the people who do that kind of stuff for fun, basically. And you see many people who are like that, they enjoy doing that. And some people make it, you know, their full-time hobby. I mean, there's one guy called Oryx who's basically been counting every single visual documented loss of Russian and Ukrainian military equipment. And he's kind of become one of the most important people for documenting, you know, the actual realistic count of the vehicle losses, And he just has a simple blog, he updates it several times a day, he's a couple of people helping out now because there's so many Russian vehicle losses, but he's actually creating a really useful and accurate data set. And he does that as basically in his spare time as a hobby. And, you know, he produces something that I think most people who are following the conflict on Ukraine seriously take as a very serious measure of the actual real vehicle losses compared to the claims coming from Russia, Ukraine and other parties.
0: A lot of people are interested in how it's funded. I know at the start you were really um, people were doing a lot for free, and um, people are wondering, you know, how how it how it works now on that front.
2: Yeah, so over the years, it's kind of you know when Bellingcat Cap was launched, it was kickstarted for about fifty six thousand pounds, and that was enough for my wage and the cost of the website being set up and designed. That then I started getting small grants here and there from various uh, foundations and. Basically, I doubled the turnover every year of through grants and other donations. Now we're at the Stitching Foundation in the Netherlands. We have 30 staff members. About 60% of our income comes from various foundations and grants. About 30% comes from uh, workshops that we run, and about 10% is from individual donations. Now, what we're trying to do at the moment is we've actually set up a production company and we're hoping to start turning our investigations into films and documentaries and other interesting products. With it's close to selling our first documentary to a really good uh, production company. So we're hoping the profits from that will then be fed back into the investigation team. Yeah, and turned into something that's uh, you know, even more investigations and even more documentaries to sell again and make even more money to, you know, hopefully an increasing cycle rather than a decreasing cycle.
0: An interesting question. First of all, um, they say warmest congratulations for the very important job you do. In the interest of playing devil's advocate, you seem to, you seem to place a lot of trust to geo, um, geolocation services and satellite imagery. Satellite data do not come from an independent source, though. It is government and intergovernmental agencies that they have placed the satellites to orbit. What extent do your organisation and partners, um, are you able to verify the satellite imagery you use?
2: Well, what you have now are commercial satellite imagery firms like Maxar and Planet Labs. Planet, for example, um, is a company that's not existed for too long, but they've been launching more and more constellations of satellites, and they sell that for commercial purposes. I mean, for one thing, if they start editing their commercial satellite imagery, they're going to lose a lot of customers very, very quickly because we have their imagery plus imagery from sources like Maxstar and other commercial satellite companies that could be cross-referenced against every imagery. So in a way, it's that triangulation going on again. We're also looking at if we start coming across videos that show something and then when we look at the satellite imagery and we know it should be there, it's not there. That's going to start becoming a problem for those satellite companies because it means they're changing their data. I really don't think that's really a huge issue, but there are ways we can take to mitigate that risk. And because triangulation plays such a big role in the work that we're doing, you know, using multiple sources for each piece of evidence, we really do quite a lot to mitigate that risk. I think for the commercial um, satellite companies, it would be suicidal to do anything like that.
0: Um, What about uh, this uh, interesting question and you talk about in the book about the future of of, um, Bellingcat, but also the future of open source information and how to kind of scale it up. And a question here is how much use is machine driven analysis to you or even AI to check material? So I think that there's um, a part in the book where you talk about the kind of opportunities and the opposite of that, that AI might bring to all of this. So
2: one thing I'll try to put together at the moment is building on the work that we're doing with our archiving for accountability. Because we want to take these processes that we've developed and share them with other organisations. And that means other organisations will be creating their own archives. And there's already organisations who've worked on things like Syria that have archives of material. The problem is you then end up with lots and lots of archives of material spread all over the place. So one of the other steps of our accountability is something we call the index on accountability, where a company called Benetech has developed software that allows them to create um, hashes for videos files and all kinds of different file formats that are based off the content of the file. And if the content of the file changes, the hashes changes. So it means that you can kind of make them forensically sound. But it also means you can use those hashes as unique IDs for, docu- for documents. But it also means if someone downloads a video into one archive from a YouTube channel, and the s- same video is downloaded into another archive, it has the same ID. So you can actually start establishing where all these duplicates are. Now, That's useful in one sense because then you know who's got copies of stuff and you can add metadata to the index that allows to make these things searchable, which makes them accessible to these accountability processes in the future. One thing that's also very interesting is you can also use this hash ID to find similar videos. So if you have a video that films the same location but from a different angle, it will have a very similar hash ID. So you can start using that to basically extract groups of files that have been filmed from the same location that might be held in multiple archives and start using that to kind of almost also geolocate videos. Because when you start doing it at that scale, You can end up with, like with Syria, there's one archive that has about 3.5 million files in it. And this is all visual imagery. If you're then able to add a file to the index, say you found a new video from a conflict zone and you add it, it can then automatically be compared to similar files. And you basically start auto-geolocating stuff. And that's one way that we can use all this data to make this process a lot easier. You also have now uh, machine learning being used to identify things like cluster munitions and videos. So when you have these masses of videos and you're trying to search through them, you don't have to rely on them being manually tagged. You can actually have a system that's identifying certain vehicles. So uh, uh, Monomic Labs, who we work a lot with on archiving, they use something called VFrame that they're training to identify certain kinds of types of arms and munitions. The forensic architecture based in the UK, they used a similar system to identify tanks in footage coming from Ukraine in 2015. And these are very effective systems. And when you're dealing with masses and masses of data, you can train them on more and more interesting things, sounds, objects, and all kinds of information. And if you can then have that working across multiple archives, what you start having is a very enriched data environment where you can do a lot of different things with that information. Um, And that's kind of that index for accountability is kind of my next big project over the next few years.
0: Well, I hope you'll come back again and talk to us about that. And I'm sure there'll be, I hope there'll be more books um, to have the sort of insider access to all the extraordinary things that go on. But unfortunately, it seems to be an hour gone flying by. I'm sure you probably need, I hope you have some sort of form of arrest this evening from the relentless news cycle at the moment. But thank you all very much indeed for signing in for your brilliant questions. And Elliot, thank you so much for joining us.
1: That's great. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Elliot Higgins and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Luke naylor Perro, and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. Elliot's book is out now in paperback and I urge you to pick up a copy. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts for twice-weekly interviews with the most exciting thinkers and doers of our time. Even better, support this show by becoming a member of How Plus, our live stream subscription service, where you can join our guests in live events and live streams almost every night of the week. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou.